Well, it's a joy to be with you in the Word as well this morning. And I wanted to bring a message that's, that's near to my heart from the book of Ephesians. And it speaks on the theme of unity in the body of Christ. And I don't know if you've noticed, but the world is a very disunified place right now, right? There's tons and tons of division everywhere we look, even in the church sometimes. And so I wanted to take a look uh, at a passage right in the middle of the book of Ephesians in chapter 4, if you want to turn there. We're going to look at the first six verses in chapter 4. But I wanted to think with you real quickly about the context of the book of Ephesians. Context is so important in everything we study in the Word. So if you think about uh, the Apostle Paul wrote this book to a church, a specific church, the church in Ephesus. And this was an interesting church in that it was in a very dark city, but was a very strong church. Very strong believers. He says he's writing to the saints in Ephesus. So one of the reasons why we think that the church was so strong is because it was not a hospitable environment. And it caused the church to have to be bold in their faith and to cling to Jesus. You know, when things are really easy for us, we tend to get a little bit lazy, right? But this church had to be on its feet, had to be nimble, and had to cling to Christ because it was an idolatrous city, the city of Ephesus. You could pick a temple and go worship a pagan god of your choice. The main drag of the city was lined by pagan temples. It was an immoral city. Uh, there were brothels literally in every neighborhood. Uh, and so the church itself, standing for the light of Christ, was a persecuted group. So it wasn't easy to be a believer. And Paul wants to flesh out for these believers, what does it look like to live as a unified body in this very dark culture that, that they're living in? And specifically, he's elaborating what does it mean to live as the body of the church? Because the church is a new concept, right? Jesus died and, and rose and instituted the church at Pentecost. And so these are believers that are having to figure out what does it mean to be the church, to live together as the church for the first time. So he's also going to flesh out to them that they're all united by the gospel of Christ. Everybody who's trusted in Christ alone to save them is a member of one family universal across the whole globe. Every genuine believer in Christ is a part of one family. And the theme that he fleshes out over and over again in the book of Ephesians is finding life in Jesus Christ together. What does it look like to live for Jesus as a unified body, as a unified whole? So in the first three chapters of Ephesians, he speaks about the call of the church. A lot of good doctrine. Think about Ephesians 2, 8, 9, salvation by grace through faith. That's that first half of the book. We're stepping into the second half of the book where he's going to speak about what does it look like in practice. So he gives us the good foundation, the good doctrine, and then he says, this is how you walk in that good doctrine as a body. What does that look like in practice where the rubber meets the road on Monday morning? That's the section that we're looking at this morning. So the first half of the book is he's saying, you're one in Christ. You are unified because I've unified you in my body. The second half of the book he's going to say, this is how you live out that unity based upon the power of the Holy Spirit, the resources that I'm going to give you. And we're going to note there are more commands, there are more imperatives in the second half of the book because he's fleshing out tangibly what it looks like for us to live as the body of Christ. Now I wanted to start off, the first slide here, we're going to look at an interesting illustration, some jobs that don't exist anymore. 
This is the classic switchboard operator. Typically, they were ladies that would sit at these panels, and they had a cord. The call would come in. They would talk to the person to find out where the call was to be routed. Specifically, if it was a, an international call, or you're going to have a call to Paris or to London, and they would literally physically connect the, connect the circuit, and then you would talk to the next operator up the line in London or Paris to connect the call locally. Now, we have computers. You, you digitize the number on your cell phone, on your home phone, and the call is connected instantly by computers. So we don't have switchboard operators anymore. So let's look at the next one. The elevator operator. There was a man or a woman that would sit, had a stool in the elevator. And at the time, elevators were very complex. You had to have, have to regulate the, the speed, the doors. It wasn't just push a button and it all happens for you. Very rarely do you find an elevator operator now, right? Usually you walk in and you push the floor you want, close the door, and everything happens automatically. So almost an irrelevant job now. What's the next one? Let's take a look. These people were waking people up. They were paid to, to shoot a, a rock up to your window or to tap on your window. Maybe you had worked a factory job, you had to get up at 4 a.m. They didn't have alarm clocks 150 years ago or 200 years ago. Now we've got our cell phones, you set it, and it goes off or your, your watch goes off. But these guys, these ladies and men were paid to wake people up. It's an irrelevant profession now. One last one. Oh, no, I think there's two more. When you went bowling, you'd bowl your frame, and then these pin setters would manually set up the pins again. Now, you go to the bowling alley, the frame's done, it resets them perfectly, computer operated, it's done. These guys don't have a job anymore. And then there's one last one, the lamplighter, right? Usually, if we have gas lights now, it's for decoration, and they're often even electronically lit. So these guys are irrelevant. They don't have a job. I wanted to share with you about a poll that was done in 2016 about uh, the American church. 72% of Americans across the board said that the local church is no longer relevant to daily life. So is the local church going the way of the lamplighters? Is the local church irrelevant now? In American life, I would say probably the numbers are probably worse today. This poll was done seven years ago. Now, we know that Jesus said that the gates of hell would never prevail against his church. So his church is not going to fail. There's no question about that. We're called to be salt and light in the community that we're in. We know that the church is the hope of the world. But does the world around us perceive us as hope? That's the big question. If the world around us doesn't perceive us as a place of hope where they can find hope, how can we become that hope for them? I want to argue uh, that we need to tangibly live out the love of Christ, the unity of Christ daily as a body for the world to look in and say, I want some of that. That's real hope for me. There's a quote by Bill Hybels that I wanted to read um, that speaks to this. The hope of the world is not government, academia, business, but the church, because it is to the church that God has entrusted the message of salvation, which truly changes people's lives and hearts. He's given us the message to bring him to the world. He is the hope, the light of the world, and we've been entrusted with that message. Why Jesus chose the church? 
It's, it was his providence. He decided he wanted to use the church as his primary vessel to reach the world with. Okay? And so we are the hope of the world. We present Christ as the body, as the church. And we want to talk about this morning how we can protect and live out the unity that Christ gave to us, his church. Unity and love are two of those things that are lacking in the world. And so when the world looks in and sees the beauty of the body, us loving each other sacrificially, us unified in the body, they long for Jesus and they're open to him. But if they look in and see discord and a lack of love, they're like, we've already got that. We don't want to have any part of your fellowship. So looking at Ephesians 4, 1 through 6, the first three verses, he's going to talk about how to protect our unity in Christ. Let's read these, these six verses. I, therefore, prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So he's going to talk about here at the beginning how to protect our unity in Christ. We know that we are one spiritually. Jesus has made us one in Christ. But experientially, in practice, that may not be visible, right? We are unified spiritually, but tangibly, are we living in that unity? What does that look like? We won't live practically as a unified body of Christ if we're not protecting that unity, right? He says, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, looking at verse 1, um, he's saying, in light of all that I've shared with you in the first three chapters, all that good doctrine, therefore, I urge you, I beg, I exhort. He's pleading with the body, right? This is, this is huge. He says, I urge you, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling, okay? He says, walk, not run. This is the language of the Holy Spirit. He's saying, walk hand in hand with the Spirit. Don't run ahead of Him. Don't lag behind Him. Walk with Him day by day. Abide in Him. And it emphasizes the fact that we desperately need the power of the Spirit to do what He's calling us to do. You and I cannot live the love and the unity in the body that He's calling us to without Him. So we've got to tap in to the resources and the power of the Spirit to live this unity that he's calling us to. He says, do it in a manner worthy. This is a metaphor in the original language that gives us the idea of scales. He's saying, let what you preach and your practice be in balance. Right? Don't preach unity and love and then live like the devil in your church. Don't live disunified. He's saying, when you preach unity and love, let that be balanced with action, with truth, right? Live it. And he talks about live our calling in a manner where the calling is being a united body in Jesus. Then he goes on to verse 2. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. All humility in everything we do, we need to approach it with humility. Let's look, we've got... Philippians 2.3 that speaks to this. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. In the Greek world of this day, 
Humility was looked down upon. If you were humble, that was the role of the servants in that day. You're supposed to be proud, have your chest out. So humility is disdained in the culture that Paul is speaking to. So he's calling them to something that's kind of radical. In this culture that he's speaking to, humility is not a virtue. And I would argue in our world today that humility is generally not seen as a virtue, right? It's the proud one, the one that goes out there and gets it, that's looked up to. Now, humility is having a right valuation of ourselves. Not um, over-evaluating ourselves, like our flesh often does, but not undervaluing, knowing who we are in Christ and the great value that we have as children of the King. So it's rightly evaluating who we are in Christ. That's what humility is. And it's the opposite of pride. Have you noticed that humility stimulates unity? It brings people together. And pride typically divides. If you look at any divided groups, it's typically pride at the root of what's causing the divisions, right? So humility is huge. He says gentleness. The idea of gentleness is power under control. Think of Jesus as the ultimate, most powerful, but under perfect control. He was gentle and lowly, according to his own words. Patience. Enduring even mistreatment without bitterness or complaint, right? Being self-controlled. Even when we're wronged by someone in the body, responding not with a vendetta, but with grace and love. Bearing with, he says, the idea of tolerating in love without grumbling. It's hard sometimes to, to get along in the body of Christ. It's not always easy to get along. But in the power of the Spirit, we can do it. And he says, bearing with one another in love. Again, this is something that only the Holy Spirit can do through us. You and I can't oh, grit our teeth and love each other this way. We can't do it. And if you try, you're going to get really tired and get exhausted and give up. It's in the power of the Spirit that we can produce this kind of love. The question is, are we willing to give up our rights and die to ourselves? That's what we're being called to. Unity requires sacrifice. It also must be defended. Verse 3. Let's take a look at what it says. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Eager to maintain the unity. We have to watch over, defend, protect unity in this body. It's not something that will happen automatically. If we're not vigilant, unity will slip away, right? We are unified spiritually. Jesus made us that way. In practice, we have to work at it and defend it in his power. I want to argue that division is Satan's most potent weapon against the church. You might think, oh, well, it's got to be heresy. He does use heresy sometimes. But if we're grounded in the word, heresy is easy to spot. You know, that's a really wonky doctrine that that guy's preaching. Okay. The issue of division is that it, it very subtly comes in. It, it happens one relationship at a time. One relationship sours, another sours. And very subtly, division seeps into a church. 
In fact, I want to look at what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1.10. He speaks to this. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. So he's not talking about putting on a facade, faking that we're unified. He's talking about genuine unity that he's producing in and through us. It might be possible for us to put on a fake smile for a little while. But as you know, that doesn't work long term. He's talking about something that he wants to produce in us and through us. And then he finishes up with the foundations of unity. He speaks about seven realities in Jesus that unite us. He says there is, uh, in fact, I don't have to read it up there. It's a little darker. There is one body and one spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all, who is over all and through all and in all. We are one body. Every believer who has put their faith in Christ all around the world is one body, the church. One spirit. It's the spirit of God who unifies us, who lives inside of us, who has joined us together spiritually. One hope. That hope is the person of Jesus Christ. We have the message, the gospel that we present. Think about it. The church has one universal message, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the hope that we have in him, salvation by grace through faith alone, in Christ alone. That is the hope of the world. And it's the one key message that he's entrusted to the entire body. One Lord. Obviously, Jesus is our one Savior. There's no other besides him. One faith. Uh, we are unified in trusting him and him alone. There is no other way, no other way to get to the Father, no other way to heaven other than Jesus. One baptism. There's discussion about, is he talking about water baptism or the baptism of the Spirit? Probably he's talking about what happens when you trust Jesus as your Savior. In that instant, the Spirit comes and lives inside of you and baptizes you. One baptism. In that, in that moment, you receive the fullness of the Spirit and all of the power of the Holy Spirit lives inside of you as a believer. The instant that you believe, you don't need to pray to receive more of the Spirit. All of who He is comes and lives inside of you the moment that you believe. All of that power is available to the believer from the second that they trust Him. That's the baptism He's speaking about here. One God and Father of all. That's beautiful. And you notice, speaks about the Father. If we go in reverse order, one God and Father, one Lord who is Jesus, and then one spirit. The whole trinity is involved in this. Isn't that beautiful? So, one thing I need to say, um, an aside, a quick parenthesis, is that unity never needs to be an excuse for compromising truth. Um, we're united in truth, and there are certain essential doctrines of the faith that we can't compromise on. Uh, in fact, I wanted to look at kind of break this down a little bit and give you a framework with which to look at. Just to give you an idea of some essential doctrines. The humanity and deity of Christ. Um, salvation by grace through faith alone and Christ alone. The Trinity, the inerrancy of the Bible. These are essential truths that we can't compromise on. These define who we are as believers. If, if one of these goes, um, we're in trouble. We're in deep trouble. And so these are things we can't compromise on. And if somebody says, well, I don't believe in the, the humanity of Christ or the deity of Christ, we're going to struggle to stay in fellowship because that's essential to who Jesus is, right? 
Somebody says, well, I think it's, it's, it's faith in Christ and, and good hard work, producing good works. No, it's salvation by grace through faith alone and Christ alone, period. We can't compromise on those things. So there are some, some rare moments when we may have to divide with other believers if we can't agree on the essentials, right? The problem is that usually when division occurs, it's over non-essential doctrinal issues. And I wanted to give you a couple of examples of non-essential doctrines. These are important things, eschatology. How is the end of the world gonna happen? How is Jesus gonna come back? We all agree that he's going to return victorious and we're gonna reign with him forever. How? We can only hope to be right, guess, right? So let's not divide over that. Styles of worship. Should we dance? Should we sit still? Should we raise our hands? Should we clap? There's examples in the Bible we can follow, but we shouldn't divide over styles of worship. Even modes of baptism. You know, some groups sprinkle, some pour. We, we immerse. We believe that's the biblical example, and that's what we do. But let's not let secondary non-essential doctrines divide us. Usually churches divide over secondary non-essentials. Someone said, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty, freedom. We show each other grace. In all things, charity, showing love, right? There's just an aside to remember that there are certain things, essentials, that we need to be unified in and we can't compromise on. So bring us to a conclusion. Our goal is not that we're going to pursue unity. We're going to pursue Jesus, relationship with him. And if we pursue Jesus together, we will by default be unified. We can't be walking faithfully with Jesus, intimate with Jesus, and disunified. If there is disunity, we've distanced ourselves from Jesus, right? So if we're walking with him faithfully, we will by, by nature be unified in him, okay? So our goal is not let's chase after unity. No, he's unified us. We're going to chase after Jesus, walk with him faithfully, arm and arm, and he will maintain that unity for us. So we're going to follow Christ together, and unity will be the byproduct of that beautiful relationship with him. We're already united spiritually. We have to preserve that in the power of the Spirit. So think about unity as something that will always be under attack. We can never let down our guard on this until Jesus comes or we go home, right? It's never a static thing. We're either moving closer together or further away. We can't just coast on this. We've got to be vigilant. I wanted to leave you with one primary application that I think is really relevant for us in the world that we live in that's so divided today, even churches that are divided. You think about the church, it is a beautiful undertaking to unite people from every tongue, nation, and bring them together under one Lord. That's a huge undertaking. You think of how diverse we are in this room, and it's beautiful. That's the beauty of the body. It is a diverse group. We're all different. We're all sometimes quirky, but it's beautiful. And that's how heaven will be. Think about the glory of the gospel that Jesus could bring together such a diverse group from all over the world and unite us as one. I counted one time in our Italian church, one night we had about 50 people there. There were five continents represented in the room. There were 10 different languages spoken. There were seven or eight different citizenships. 
many different backgrounds, some from believing backgrounds, some from non-believing. It was a beautiful, diverse group. And what is the one thing that can unite that diversity? The gospel of Christ, Jesus. And Jesus is not looking for uniformity. When we come into the body, he's not looking for us to be cookie-cutter, all identical. No, it's unity in diversity. There's beauty in the diversity. And that's what he's going for. So what has to be the foundation of that unity? It needs to be our new identity in Christ, who we are in Jesus. In fact, when we trust Jesus in that instant, we become a new creation. In fact, I wanted to read what Paul tells us about that, um, speaking about new creations in Christ in uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 16 through 18. So then, from now on, we acknowledge no one from an outward human point of view even though we have known Christ from such a human point of view, now we do not know him in that way any longer. So then, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. What is old has passed away. Look, what is new has come. And all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ, and who has given us the ministry of reconciliation. So our identity, the moment we trust Jesus, becomes new creation, saint, child of the king. That supersedes every other identity that you and I have in this world. Now, I don't know about you, but I've noticed that the world tries to categorize us by so many different identities. We're categorized by our profession, by our socioeconomic level, by our race, by our political persuasion. The world tries to pigeonhole us and put us in categories and divide us by category. Have you noticed that? What Paul wants us to see here is that our identity in Christ as children of God, as saints, is our primary identity. Every other identity becomes secondary, subservient to our identity in Jesus. And he wants us to relate to each other based upon our identity in him. It's the one identity that will last for eternity. You know when we die, it won't matter if we were a conservative uh, Liberal, Republican, Democrat, it won't matter what we did. It won't matter uh, who our family was. All that will matter is Jesus and our identity in him. So we need to be connected on the basis of that identity. Think about our identity in Christ. We all came to Jesus the same way on our knees. Nobody came proudly up to Jesus and said, give me salvation. No. We all had to bend our knee and say, Jesus, I'm a sinner in need of a, of a Savior. Receive me as your child. I trust in you. You're my one hope. None of us came boldly, proudly to the cross. We came humbly. The cross is the great leveler, right? Jesus brings down all the walls of division and brings us all to him at the same level. Think about it. We, are, we have more in common with a, a believer in North Korea on the far other side of the earth than a non-believer in our hometown. Have you thought about that? We've got far more in common. We have a united identity in Christ with believers from all over the world, even more than someone that doesn't know Christ in our own hometown. We will be tempted by the world to relate to each other to judge each other, to compare each other based upon our secondary identities. And if we do that, we'll be always divided. 
But if we will relate to each other in this room as the body of Christ, based upon who we are in Jesus, as saints, as children of the King, we all come together at the same level at the foot of the cross in Jesus, in humility. The world will always try to divide us by our secondary identities, but there's no place for that in the church, right? Those secondary identities don't matter. What matters is who we are in Jesus, children of the King, blood-bought, new creations in Christ. At best, the world can only offer toleration. We'll tolerate each other. But in Christ, we've been reconciled to each other. We're all new creations in him with an identity connected to him. He is our one Lord. So, if you're a believer here, I want to challenge you to ask yourself in the quietness of your heart, what other secondary identities maybe have superseded in your mind that core identity of who you are in Christ? And if there are secondary identities that have become too important, ask him to help you Put those in their right place and see yourself and see others in the body primarily as new creations in Christ. And that'll change how you relate to yourself and to others. If you're here and you've never taken that step to be born again, simply admitting that you need a Savior and placing your faith in Christ alone, I challenge you this morning. We're going to have an invitation in the next few moments. Come forward. Speak to one of the pastors, and they will lead you. You can, you can leave this room today and know that you are a new creation in Christ and have your eternity secure in heaven. You can know that today. And that is the only way that you can be unified with the body. Right? So let's pray. Father, thank you for the beauty of the body of Jesus. Church is your beautiful creation. Unity and diversity is what you're looking for. God, would you help us to maintain the unity that you have established in the person of Jesus Christ. Thank you for the beauty of the body. Help us to maintain that unity in the power of the Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray.